world. And one of the goals of this series is to help us address how little attention the church often gives to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Pentecost is a part of that. Uh, sure, we celebrate, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Good Friday, we celebrate Easter, but I, don't, I, I wonder how many Christians actually know that it, today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it's, one, it's a holiday that, that gets overlooked. There's no Pentecost bunny. <laughs> There's no Pentecost tree. There's no Pentecost presents waiting for us. No, it's, it's a holiday that we often miss. And so we often, we take Pentecost, we take the Holy Spirit for granted. Uh, you know, we're so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful for Jesus' sacrifice for us. But how often do we give thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit? How often are we giving God thanks for sending his Holy Spirit to be in us and with us? And so today I want to go back and I want to tell the story of why Pentecost is so significant. The title of the sermon this morning is God's Presence Returns. Because it's, the Pentecost is about the presence of God returning to the people. And I'm going to need a little bit of help. So I'm going to take this here. Try to bring this out where you guys can see it. And uh, I'm going to try to trace this journey. Is that good? Can you guys see it there? Okay. So we're going to go back and tell the story um, of, of the presence of God throughout the scriptures. And I'm trying to give you some markers along the way. And so the story starts out, as you know, in a garden. I apologize if you can't see this. You can take a picture of it afterwards. Hopefully this gives you some markers. Um, but it starts off in a garden that God made for Adam and Eve, that they're living in the beauty of the garden and God's presence is with them. In fact, in Genesis 3.8, it says this. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the garden, there was no barrier between us and God. God was walking with the people. God was with the people. They were in his presence, and there was nothing in between them. He could freely walk in the garden among them. But as we know, something terrible happened. Satan deceives the people. They disobey God. And because God's holy presence cannot be in the presence of sin, God banishes them from the garden and from direct access to his presence. And so from this point forward in the story, they go, the humanity goes on this downward spiral of sin and violence and all kinds of things. And so to address this problem, God calls a man named Abram. And he says, I'm going to bless you and use your family to restore my blessing to the world. God's shalom is going to be restored through the line of Abraham. And so Abraham's descendants do grow and they become the family of Hebrews who become slaves in Egypt. And at that time... God raises up a man named Moses to deliver the people from Pharaoh. And God sends the ten plagues, including the final one, where God judges the, the Egyptians, but he passes over the houses of the Israelites. And so we know this story as a story of Passover. We sometimes refer to it as the Exodus, where God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he comes to meet with them there. And look what it says in Exodus 19:18. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Can you imagine being there that day? That would be terrifying. A mountain is on fire. There is smoke rising up and the earth is quaking. This is terrifying. No wonder the people did not really want to be in the presence of God. Said, no, Moses, you go up and talk to him. 
We're scared. And I want you to notice that there is a shaking. There is a fire associated with the presence of God. And it terrifies the Israelites. And they're, they're wondering how could they possibly be in the presence of such a majestic and holy God. And as God is talking with Moses on the mountain, he gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him many other laws. But very importantly, he gives him instructions on how God's holy presence will be able to dwell among them again. Exodus 25, 8. God says, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Hold on. The fiery mountain, the presence that is causing this mountain to quake and to have fire on it is going to come dwell among the people? How is that going to be possible? Well, God's going to give them some instructions. And so he says, make a sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary, it's also called the tabernacle. It's also called the tent of meeting. It was a portable structure because at this time, the Israelites are nomadic people. They're not settled in the land. So whatever God builds for his presence is going to have to move with the people. It's going to have to travel with them. And God provides all kinds of instructions for how this is going to work. He sets up the priesthood. He sets up the sacrificial system. He sets up the way that it's going to be built with all kinds of details. And he says, this is how it's going to work for me to be with you. And so after they make all the preparations and they're consecrated to the Lord, God says this, Exodus 29. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Notice what God says. He says, I performed all of these miracles in the Passover in Exodus. I did all that. I brought you out of there so that I might dwell among you. I might dwell among them and be their God. See, God wants to restore his presence, his holy presence with the people. That's why he did all that. He's reestablishing what went wrong in the garden. So Moses, he gets to work. He sets up the courtyard, the altar, the basin, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, where the, where the mercy seat, where the sacrifices are made, all the furnishings of the tabernacle. And then, this is how the book of Exodus ends, Exodus 40, 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's basically how the book of Exodus ends. It's the climax of the story. God's presence has returned again to the people. That's the climax. That's what God, why God did it. But then the people begin uh, to disobey God again, and so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses begins to prepare them to enter the promised land. And he says in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book of Moses' last teachings before he dies and they go off to the promised land, and he says this, he says, God is going to choose the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, Deuteronomy 12, 11. In other words, God is going to choose a specific place for his presence to dwell. It's not going to be in the tabernacle where it moves around. No, there's going to be a place that God will choose, but they don't know what it is yet. And so the story moves, moves along, fast-forwarding many hundreds of years. Later on, King Solomon, the son of King David, he builds the temple in Jerusalem. And just as God's presence filled the tabernacle of Moses, so it again fills the temple. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. His temple. 
So I want to give you another marker here. They build the temple in Jerusalem, and God's presence is going to dwell there. And they say that, and so that's why Jerusalem is often praised in the scriptures, because that is where God shows for his name to dwell, where his glory would go out to the people and to the ends of the earth. Now, let me clarify something really quickly here. Uh, God's presence is everywhere, right? The scriptures teach that there's, there's, no, there's no way I can, where I can run. I can't run away from your presence. The Psalms teach us that. So the Bible, the people in the Bible, they know that God's presence is everywhere. Even Solomon, who, is, who built this temple, he said this in 1 Kings 8.27. He's praying to God. He says, the, highest, or the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So even Solomon, the builder of the temple, he knows that nothing in heaven and even this temple cannot contain the presence of God. But, but nevertheless, God is choosing the temple. God is choosing a place for his presence to be especially present, to be, to be full, to be magnified, to be manifested there in the temple. There is something special about this place where people experience, they feel it, they see it, they experience the presence of God there in the temple. So God's presence is everywhere, but yet it is experienced and magnified in the temple because his glory fills that place. But soon after the temple is built, trouble happens. The kingdom splits in two. There's the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And I got a little map if you need a little refresher here. So it's kind of right above Jerusalem, above the Dead Sea there, that big water in the middle. That's the southern kingdom of Judah in the capital. And then to the north is the, the kingdom of Israel. And so they kind of operate as these two kingdoms for a few hundred years. And they go through some different successions of kings, most of whom are, are bad, and they lead the people astray. Uh, and, that, and what happens is the people end up worshiping all the gods of the people around them. They worship other gods, they worship idols, and how they worship impacts how they live. And so they begin to oppress their neighbors. They begin to amass wealth and hoard it. And they don't share it. And they begin to have greed take place in their heart. And they practice all kinds of evil. And so because of this, God is sending the prophets to warn them. But they don't heed the warnings. And so the northern kingdom is the first to go. God's, God sends the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come and they, in 720 B.C. They attack the northern kingdom of Israel and deport them to Assyria. And the northern kingdom is destroyed in 720 B.C. Northern kingdom. Gone. Deported to Assyria. No more. But then, Judah is warned that if they don't repent, they will experience the same fate as the northern kingdom as well. And they don't repent. They continue to do all the same evil that the northern kingdom did. They worship other gods, they oppress their neighbors, they hoard onto wealth, and they don't listen to the warnings of the prophets. And so God is going to judge them as well. And this is where the Babylonians come in. Now, I have another map for you. Uh, so we have the kingdom of Assyria in the north. They're the ones that came down to Israel. There you see Jerusalem. They're in the, towards the middle. And that's, that's the kingdom that came down and attacked the northern kingdom. But eventually they fell because Babylon conquered them. And Babylon becomes the next superpower. And they come to Israel to attack them under King Nebuchadnezzar, who many of you know. And so in 597 B.C., they attack Jerusalem for the second time. And they take exiles with them back to Babylon. 
That's 900 miles away. It's a really far, far place. And one of the people they take with them is a young priest named Ezekiel. And he goes with them to Babylon. And now to clarify at this point, Jerusalem is still standing. The temple is still standing because uh, Babylon is using them as like a vassal. They're under the power of Babylon, but they're not destroyed. And so even though Jerusalem has been defeated twice now by the Babylonians, there are still some people who think, we're invincible. We will never be defeated. We will never be fully conquered by the Babylonians. You know why? Because we have the temple. The presence of God is with us. We can't be defeated. If God is with us, who can be against us? Babylon can't come in here and take us out. Can't possibly happen. But while Ezekiel is in Babylon, he is given a prophetic vision. Ezekiel is a, cra a crazy book. If you read it, there's all kinds of visions he gets. It's very interesting. In Ezekiel chapters 10 through 11, he sees that glory of God. He sees the presence of God in the temple. But it's very interesting. Over time in the chapters, it says the glory of God moves a little bit. It moves away from the Ark, of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's kind of slowly making its way to the threshold. And he sees the glory of God again, and it moves again. And then it's moving to the outside of the temple, and it keeps moving. And no one notices this is going on. No one notices that the presence of God is leaving. And then all of a sudden, in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel gets the vision of the presence of God leaving the city entirely. And it, go, and it and makes its way, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. That's the Mount of Olives. And it's actually, and as, if, you're, if you're in Jerusalem and you're looking, at, looking east, all you can see is the Mount of Olives. And so when you go over the mountain, guess what? You're gone. You can't see anything past the Mount of Olives. And so in other words, Ezekiel is, is, is seeing God's leaving the building. God is leaving, the, God is leaving his temple. God's presence is withdrawing. No more will they be divinely protected in, by his presence. And so in 587 B.C., the Babylonians come in again, and they totally destroy Jerusalem. They totally destroy the temple. They raise everything to the ground. Imagine Wheaton with all the buildings totally demolished. Imagine our church building totally destroyed, leveled to the ground, all of these nice banners are gone. The, our Bible's gone. Our documents are gone. These chairs are gone. Everything is gone. The people lost everything. This is what happened to Jerusalem. 587 B.C. The temple is destroyed. Sorry for my writing there. And so the people are taken to Babylon, 900 miles away. They're in exile. And they're there about 70 years. It's a long time. Most of us haven't lived that long yet. Some of you have. But I imagine being there that long, it would be profoundly discouraging. The people had been judged by God, forsaken by God. His presence wasn't there in the temple to protect them. And the people, they had a history of not doing so great. They kept falling into sin. They kept disobeying the God. They kept breaking his covenant. And so I imagine they wondered, how could things ever be restored? How could we get back to our people? How could God ever dwell with us again? And it was during this time of the exile that Jeremiah and Ezekiel are prophesying. They're giving the people hope. And this is what Jeremiah tells them in Jeremiah 33. He says, look, 
The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. There's the Passover covenant again. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God's going to make a new covenant. And this time, the law is going to be something that is within them. And Ezekiel the prophet, he expands on this. He says, well, the law isn't just going to be written. There's going to, there's going to be some type of means by the way that they can live that law out. And so he says that this teaching written on the heart is going to happen by God's very spirit being placed within the people. Look what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. God says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So in other words, the spirit is going to empower them to live into the covenant that God is going to make with them. And so even though the temple is gone, Jerusalem is destroyed, that they're in a foreign land, God is giving them hope. And so they begin to await for the day when God is going to make this new covenant with them by giving them his Holy Spirit, thereby changing their hearts and transforming their lives. And so they're waiting that day. They wait in exile for 70 years. And after that, what happens? The Persians, another superpower, comes up, and they conquer the Babylonians. And King Cyrus of Persia, he permits the people to go back to the land and to rebuild the temple. And we call this period the, the return and the, re, and the rebuild. And this is led by Ezra and Nehemiah, two books of the Bible that are towards the end. And we read about these stories of the people coming back. And uh, they're encouraged, the people are encouraged to rebuild. It takes them about 20 years to rebuild the temple. And they finally finish rebuilding the temple. But what's interesting, we are never told that the glory of God comes back. Where there's no story, there is no mention of the presence of God filling the temple again. We had it in the tabernacle. We had it with Solomon. But there is no mention of the spirit, of the presence of the glory of God coming in to the temple. There's no, there's no smoke, no fire, no wind. There's nothing. And, people, and the people notice there is something different about this temple. It doesn't have the same glory as the first temple. There's something wrong. There's something wrong here. And even there's a tradition of the Jews that extends later than this, but it's in the Babylonian Talmud. And even the Jews said that the temple lacked the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. They knew the presence of God wasn't there. God was not in the temple again. And so the Old Testament ends on a very curious note. Where's, when's God going to come back? When's the presence of God going to return to the temple? And so they have this expectation that the, this Messiah that God is going to raise up is going to come and restore all things. He's going to come and restore the presence back. So Malachi 3.1, the last book of the Old Testament, gives this promise. He says, Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, 
says the Lord of armies. The new covenant is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. God's going to come back to the temple, but it hasn't happened yet. So we fast forward 400 years to the Gospels. And the book of John opens with this. It says, Jesus, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling in the Greek is the same word for tabernacle. God's presence is tabernacling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of God, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so the presence of God comes back to the temple, but it's not in the way that people expected. It's in the form of Jesus Christ. So he returns, and Jesus lives. He makes disciples. He inaugurates the kingdom of God. He heals people. He casts out demons. He teaches the crowds. And then right before he dies, he says, I am making a new covenant with you in my blood. And then he goes to die on the cross and rise again three days later. And you know what? All of that, Jesus' death and resurrection, it happens on Passover. It happens on Passover. God is redeeming, God is setting free the people again. And after Jesus rises from the dead, he spends about 40 days with his disciples, preparing them for the mission he's about to send them on. And he doesn't say, okay, go on and get started. No, he says, wait, Acts chapter 1. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now notice Jesus says, it was promised. The Father promised beforehand. He's talking about the prophets who've been prophesying, this is coming, this day is coming, this day you've been waiting for. It's promised by the, fa by the Father. And now in the Jewish calendar, after Passover, the next festival is called Pentecost. And it's about 50 days after Passover. And at that time, it became, it became to be the festival where they celebrated God visiting them on Mount Sinai with the smoke and with the fire and with his presence on the mountain, making a covenant with them and giving them the tabernacle. And how crazy is it that after Jesus dies and rises again on Passover, that on Pentecost in Acts 2 it says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly, like a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And this should remind us of what exactly happened at Mount Sinai. What Pentecost was about, God filling the tabernacle, filling, and the fire and the wind all coming together. The glory that we never saw fill the second temple is now filling his temple again. So at Pentecost, God's presence has finally returned. It has come back. Hallelujah. God's presence has filled his temple again. The promise has been fulfilled. The new covenant is here. It has filled the temple. But it's not a temple made by human hands. It is the people of God. God's presence is back. And we are now living in that day. And so now the church, the body of Christ, is now the temple of God. The place where God's presence is most powerfully felt and experienced. It's what makes us different than everybody else. So the Spirit has returned. The Spirit has come to His people. At Pentecost. 
And so this is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, chapter, 20, or chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, he says, In Christ the whole building is joined together, the building of the church, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. Friends, we are the temple of God corporately. This is huge. This is huge. This means we are the priestly people that we mediate the presence of God to the world, to our neighborhood, to our workplaces, to Wheaton and to Warrenville. When I was in Jerusalem, they said when the old temple was standing and then when people would come traveling that you could begin to smell the city from miles away. That Jerusalem had such a, a powerful smell that would arrest you because, because the, at, at the temple, the incense was constantly, being, was constantly going and filling the city. And the sacrifices of the animals and the meat, the smoke would come out of the temple and it just permeated everything. I mean, imagine, imagine having like 10 essential oils going on in your house. Angela, you can resonate with that, right? <laughs> but that's how Jerusalem was. There was constant smells going on. And so much so that when you approached Jerusalem, you could smell it. There was something different in the air. And this is how it should be with the church of God today. We are the temple of God. And when people, and when we're in a city, when we're in a place, the place should begin to smell differently. It should begin to start to arrest people. They should start to notice something because they are making this place smell differently. Things are different here because the temple of God is here. And what's really astounding about Pentecost is that the tongues of fire come to rest on each one of them. And so, yes, it's true that we together are the temple of God, but individually as well, the Holy Spirit resides in the believer. And so now everywhere you go, you are a temple of the living God. You bring Christ's presence with you. And so everywhere you go, you're already on mission. God's already sending you. You just have to open up your eyes to see, God, how are you sending me? How are you using me? You're already bringing his presence with you. Just open your eyes to it. And so finally, we must learn the lessons from our ancestors and not allow idolatry or compromise in the temple. See, the old, under, under the Old Covenant, they allowed different idols. They allowed different things to be worshipped in the temple. They allowed all kinds of evil practices. And that's what defiled the Old Temple. And the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. He's holy. He's pure. He is righteous. He is good. He is just. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In other words, because the presence of God dwells within you, we must be holy in all that we do. We must be holy in our relationships with other people. We must be holy in our sexuality. We must be holy in what our tongues say. We must be holy refraining from gossip and slander and grumbling and quarreling. We must be holy in what our eyes look at. We must be holy in what our hands do. We must be holy at work, holy in the home, holy in the church, holy everywhere you go. Because why? Because you are a temple of the living God. So be holy in all that you do. Friends, God loved you so much, he gave you his one and only Holy Spirit so that he might be in you forever. One final thing to complete the story. We have the Holy Spirit now, but we only experience God in part. We're still fallen. We're still not fully reconciled to God. And this is why Revelations 21, 
uh, verse 3, he says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. With them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. One day, in the new heavens, in the new earth, God's presence will fully dwell with the people again. The garden will be restored, and we will be with God forever. No barriers between us and him. The presence of God is a a dominant theme in the Bible. We see it from beginning to end. And Pentecost is about God's presence returning to us. So today, may you rejoice that today is Pentecost Sunday. That God's presence has returned. That the spirit, the presence, the glory is back in the building. And it's in us. And it's in you. So go forth knowing that God is with you. His fire is in you. His boldness empowers you. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God because his presence is in the church. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we've heard what you've done from long ago. The fire, the wind, the shaking, the filling of your church. God, we thank you that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But yet your word says to continue to go on, to be filled, to let it fill us, to let it empower us. So, oh God, fill us anew, we pray. Fill this church, this body of faith covenant, that we might be the temple of God in this community you've placed us in. God, may this place smell differently because you've placed us here. God, may we experience your boldness as we go into the workplace, the neighborhood, the places that you've already sent us. Oh God, help us to see where you are sending us and where you are calling and to the people of peace you are already drawing to yourself. And oh God, help us to be people of the Spirit, sensitive to your Spirit, guided by your Spirit, discerning people of the Spirit, and filled with all the fruits and gifts of the Spirit that you have for us, that we might be your people in this land. Thank you, God, for this gift. Thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for how your presence has always uh, uh, worked through the scriptures, and and now the presence has returned. And now we pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.